as wonderful as that was, I've got something to say to you. It starts out good, actually. You're a very likable bunch of people. Yeah. Uh, as good as they come, actually. But I do have some incriminating things I need to share with you. I've done some investigating, and, I, and I've come up with um, some evidence. I didn't even have to, to hack your computer or tap your phone lines or use drones. And what I've discovered is you don't deserve the grace of God. Yeah. Sorry. And even worse is I don't deserve the grace of God. We could get into that a little bit further, but it's easier to talk about how Israel doesn't deserve the grace of God. So let's talk about that because that's where we're at in our passage as we are walking our way through Romans. So uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 10 today. And what Paul has been saying in chapter 10 is that um, Israel has heard the gospel. They've heard the news that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that he saves those who put their trust in him. But as Paul says in verse 21 of chapter 10, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So Israel is resisting, has turned away from the gospel of Christ, largely, and, and Paul is deeply concerned about that. So would you stand with me? And we're going to read from chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am, am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. Let's pray. Father, Give us, by your grace, eyes to see and ears to hear of the truth of the massive grace of Jesus Christ. Help us to understand what your word is saying. You've preserved it for us. Father, through your word today, grant hope to those who are hopeless. Grant mercy to those who are suffering. Grant joy for those who are depressed. Grant conviction to those who are heart of heart, grant faith to those who are doubting, 
grant healing to those who are suffering in, in body. Do work that only you can do in our midst today, Father. Open our eyes to see the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So because of Paul's, what he said in chapter 10 about Israel's rejection of Christ and the gospel of salvation by Christ through faith in him, one might conclude that God would reject Israel. Hey, you reject me, I reject you. But Paul presents this as a question, has God rejected his people? And he says, by no means, no way. In Russian, to be nyet. In German, to be nine. In American slang, it'd be, what would it be? It'd be, shut up. I'll prove it, said Paul. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham a card-carrying member of the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul had been a serious Christ rejecter. He had persecuted Christians. He had been persecuting the church. So he is an example of one that God was still saving Israelites, even though many were rejecting Jesus as Messiah. And in, in the beginning of verse 2, Paul says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. For God to foreknow someone or for God to foreknow a people, is not for him just to know things about them in advance. God said of, of Israel in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. God knew about all the, all the peoples, all the families of the earth. He knew things about them. But Israel wasn't the only people God knew about. God knows everything about everyone. But the sense is that God foreordained a relationship with Israel. He foreknows the people of Israel, people of Israel as his very own. They are a people he purposes to set his covenant love upon. So that's what God's talking about. They, they were the only people whom he chose for a covenant relationship. Paul says that God has not rejected his people whom he chose to set his love on before they existed. He's not rejecting them. He already knew they would be unfaithful and, and disobedient, and still he chose them to be his own people, to bless them, to be a blessing to the world. In this sense and context, for God to foreknow Israel doesn't mean that they're all going to be saved. That's, most of them were not being saved, and that's what grieves Paul and, and is a major point in Romans chapter 9-11. through 11. His point here is that even though many Jews have not been saved, yet there is hope for their future salvation and for the world because of God's special purpose and relationship with Israel. And then he says in the second part of, of, of verse 2, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Paul gives another example, from uh, this time from Israel's history, about how God preserved a remnant out of his people, Israel, when they had been unfaithful. Elijah the prophet had defeated the prophets of, of the false god Baal, which Israel had been worshiping. When the wicked queen Jezebel heard what Elijah did, she said she would have Elijah killed. She put his wanted posters up in all the delis and, and bagel shops around Israel. Elijah flees for his life and ends up on Mount Horeb. The Lord says to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
And Paul quotes Elijah's words in, his, in kind of Eeyore-like fashion. You all know who Eeyore is? He's a donkey. He hangs out with Winnie the Pooh. So he says, kind of like Eeyore, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left. Guess I wasn't much of a prophet anyway. And they seek my life. And in verse 4, what is God's reply to him? God says to Elijah that he has kept for himself a remnant of Israel, 7,000 men who had not bowed the knee to Baal. This is the connection between Elijah's day and Paul's day. Elijah was about 900, 800 years before Paul. And the connection there was that just as most of Israel was devoted to Baal and instead of the Lord in Elijah's day, so most of Israel in Paul's day had refused to trust Jesus as Lord and as Messiah. In times when the majority of Israel is, is apostate, that is, they've turned their backs on God, God keeps for himself, he keeps for himself a people who trust in him. It is not that the 7,000 in Elijah's time were naturally more righteous than the rest of the Israelites. It was God's action, God's doing, God's merciful choice of them that kept them to keep for himself a remnant who could be loyal to him. In verse 5, he says, So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. In the same way that God mercifully kept for himself a remnant in Elijah's day, so he did in Paul's day, and has to the present time. At the present time, there is a remnant of believing Israelites chosen by grace, elected by grace. God didn't choose the remnant based on them being the most likely to succeed or because they were the cream of the crop, but because of his free grace. Paul explains this further in, in verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. But if it is by grace, what is it? God's choosing, God's election. If God's choosing of a remnant to be saved by, is by grace, it can't be based on works. God freely chooses to save people for himself, not because he sees how well they're going to do, not because he sees that they are going to believe, not because they have been better people than the others, but because of his electing grace alone, God's mere grace. The only reason any Jews believe is because God has graciously and mercifully chosen them for salvation. That's what Paul's saying. God's grace is the only explanation. Some think it isn't fair that some get chosen and others don't based on only on God's free and, and sovereign choice. But as Paul has made it clear in chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are only made right with God, as Paul says in chapter 3, verse 24, we are only made right with God by his grace as a gift. That's the only reason we're made right with God is by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, we are saved by his grace because we don't deserve to be saved. 
For God to uphold his perfect justice and forgive us of our sins and count us right in his sight, he punished our sins in Christ in his death on the cross. And in Christ's resurrection from the dead, he got the victory over sin and death for us and accomplished for us new life. God's choice of us in the past was not based upon our future choice of him or our goodness. God elected us by grace in the past for salvation by grace in the present. That is why Paul says if God elects us by grace, it can't be based on works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Either God chooses us freely by his grace, not on the condition of our goodness or our good works, or he chooses based upon something we are or do. And it's humbling to know that God doesn't do that. He can't do that because we we don't have it in us. We don't deserve it. God didn't choose us because he saw we would be good. He didn't say, hey, now that that woman has potential. She's going to make me a great servant, a great daughter. No, God didn't choose us because he, he saw we would be good. He chose us, whether Jew or Gentile, to make us good. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It says, God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Like, that was a long time ago, way back. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So because we are so ruined by sin, the only way that we are going to be holy and blameless before God was he chose us in Christ. In Christ. God's choosing us is the ultimate decisive, ultimately decisive in our salvation. We chose God because he first chose us. No one deserves to be elected. And you can take that as a political statement. And that's a different subject. But for God to elect anyone is a merciful gift that we can't claim as a right. So Paul says in verse 7, what then? What then? What then do we conclude about the fact that only a remnant, a small portion of Israel is being saved? I mean, these are God's people that he chose to set his love upon. So what's going on with, with this small remnant that's being saved? Paul says that the fact that God chose a remnant means God has not rejected Israel. But there is still the reality that if some are receiving the blessings of God's election, some are not. So Paul focuses on the rest of Israel now, those who are not chosen. And that's a problem. What was Israel seeking that it failed to obtain? That's what he says in verse 7. What Israel was seeking, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was it seeking? Well, back in chapter 9, verse 31, Paul said that Israel pursued the law for righteousness, so pursued the law of Moses for righteousness. And in, in chapter 10, in the earlier part, he said that Israel zealously sought to establish their own righteousness, their own rightness, and did not submit to the righteousness that comes from God by faith in Christ alone, which Paul says in the rest of chapter 10, they had definitely heard this message. Clearly they had heard the message that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. So Israel in general did not obtain the righteousness that they were seeking. The elect within Israel did obtain it by grace through faith. 
the elect is actually the word election. So it could be translated, election obtained it. It's not Paul being clumsy with his language. He's saying he used the word election to emphasize God's gracious will and work that accomplished what Israel's seeking could not. And that's how it is with us. What all of our seeking to be right with God cannot accomplish, God's electing grace does. Again, Paul had said the fact that there is an elect remnant within ethnic Israel means God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. But that leaves us with a hard truth about the rest, the the non-elect. He says the rest were hardened. What does that mean, the rest were hardened? Well, hardened means to become spiritually insensitive so that one is unwilling and unable to respond to God and his message of salvation. Sadly, we experience this sometimes in human relationships where our hearts grow hard toward another person and we just are not going to respond to them in any kind of loving way. And so that's how it is toward, toward God with people who are hardened. That ethnic Israel is, as a nation is experiencing hardening toward the gospel is temporary. That's some good news for them. As Paul will say in verse 25 of chapter 11, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, all that God's going to save among us non-Jews, us Gentiles, then the hardening will be lifted from Israel. But for individuals who are hardened in their unbelief, there may be no remedy for, for the individuals who are hardened. Paul wasn't saying that the elect obtained a right standing with God while the rest remains indifferent. He says the elect obtained righteousness from God and the rest were hardened. Several times in Romans, Paul has written about God's sovereign work in saving people and in hardening people. And in that, he interweaves the truth that we're responsible for to believe and and to repent, responsible for our, our, our own sin. Romans 1 through 3 3 clearly says we are judged for our sins outside of Christ. It's, it's, it's our responsibility to, to repent and turn away from sin. But in our human understanding, we simply cannot reconcile these two truths. That God is decisive and sovereign in our salvation and that we're fully responsible for responding to Him in faith. There's no human answer that, that resolves that tension between those two truths. But the scriptures clearly teach that God is sovereign in our salvation and that we are 100% responsible to respond to him in faith. And we'll see both of these things at work in these uh, hard texts that Paul quotes from the Old Testament. He keeps doing this to us, requiring us to go back to the Old Testament. And So here we go. In verse 8, the wording of the verse shows that Paul is not talking about people hardening their own hearts in this situation, but that God is doing the hardening. God gave them a spirit of stupor, he says. He combines the wording from Isaiah 29.10 and Deuteronomy 29.4. In Deuteronomy, Moses reviews Israel's history as well as foretells what will happen. He says they will be exiled for their sin and will be delivered in the future when God gives them new hearts. So that's what he's quoting from, but for now, God has given the majority of Israel a spirit of stupor. How many of you know what it's like to be in the spirit of stupor? 
How many of you are there now? That what is the spirit of stupor that he's talking about? It's inability to make sense of God's saving message and to accept it. When you're in a spirit of stupor, just physically, it's hard to think straight and you make foolish decisions. And you don't choose things that are good and right. And you say silly things. It's worse in spiritual stupor because you're, you're not able to choose, you're not willing to choose the message about Christ, the truth about Christ. And, and Paul says he gave them spiritual blindness and deafness to the truth about Christ. So God has brought this spiritual stupor and, and spiritual deafness and blindness upon many in Israel. And then in verses 9 and 10, Paul quotes from David and from Psalm 69. Psalm 69 gets used a ton in the New Testament, talking a lot about the person and work, the death and life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so... Um, David talks about, David is the, is the original author of Psalm 69. And he's talking about the unjust suffering his enemies are bringing upon him. Paul applies David's prayer for God to visit judgment on his enemies who are persecuting him, to present-day Israel, for rejecting Jesus. By using the words from this psalm, Paul is affirming that the rest of Israel, who were not the elect, were responsible for their unbelief and rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. He's saying they're responsible. They, they deserve the, the spiritual judgments that he quotes from Psalm 69. Because Paul, because David, and Paul quotes David, that retribution is coming upon them. And retribution is deserved punishment. So what does it mean to ask that their table become a snare? That's kind of unusual words, isn't it? Their table become a snare, trap, stumbling block, and, and retribution for them. How do, you, how do you trip over a table? Some of us have probably done that. But what he's getting at here is it means that the good things they enjoy will become occasions of sin and deepen their hardness of heart. He is saying, let them use their good things as God things. May their food, their relationships, their money, their possessions ensnare them and cause them to stumble more deeply into sin so that God's retribution, his just punishment, the judgment they deserve will be increased. So David's asking God to do this at those who are persecuting him. And Paul's saying this is what is being deserved by Israel. When our hearts are hardened toward God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, we turn the devotion and satisfaction that we were meant to find in God to the good things that God has given us. As if they're the ultimate reality that makes sense of our lives. We worship and serve the created things rather than the creator. And it warps us. That deepens our spiritual blindness, as Paul says next. He says in verse 10, let them be unable to see the truth of the gospel. Let their eyes be darkened. May they not be able to see the, the gospel as beautiful and good and worth believing. May they not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. As a result, may they bend their backs forever. Yeah, what's he talking about there? If you've ever had back pain, sometimes you, you wake up bent over in the morning and it takes you a while to straighten up. And so that's, talking about eternal back pain is pretty tough. I think what he's talking about is may they be bent over in suffering and shame forever. 
Okay, take a deep breath. What do we do with these verses? We're supposed to say, yes, amen. <laughs> Keep on preaching. Be quiet. Let's get back to singing. What do we do with these? Remember, Paul started out saying God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He says this because there is a, a remnant that God has chosen by grace. But these texts say there is some seriously terrible judgment for, for many. I can't just leave us under these words of judgment, but neither should I minimize them or explain them away. Because for grace to mean anything to us, for us, we're going to sing a song called Amazing Grace. It's, it's not so amazing if, if sin is no big deal. If I basically deserve God's goodness, then what's so amazing about grace? What Paul will say in the rest of chapter 11 will address God's good purpose that he's working out for and through Israel, even in the midst of their hardness. His good purpose that he's accomplishing in the world through that. He didn't mean for people to stop reading at verse 10 like, we, like we're doing today. So I'm going to cheat. I'm confessing my sin to you. I'm going to cheat. And we're going to read the next two verses and if you have your Bible, uh, just to make sure I'm reading the right thing, it's not, not going to be on the screen. In verses 11 and 12, so what, what, where does Paul take what he said about all this judgment coming upon Israel? So he says, so I ask in verse 11, I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the, the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Okay, what is that talking about? Well, we'll talk more about it next week, or the following week. But um, Israel's stumbling has a redemptive purpose. It has brought salvation to us Gentiles. I'm assuming there's few, maybe, maybe there's some Jewish background believers here in this congregation, but uh, most of us are Gentiles. We're grateful for that, but, but what about Israel? Our, our salvation was to make them jealous. So that's a good thing? Is Israel supposed to say, thank you, Lord, for using our transgression to save the Gentiles, which is in turn to make us jealous? We love having that role. Actually, Yes, it is a good thing to be made jealous and to want what Christ has to offer them. But Paul says that since their transgression means riches for the world, how much more will their full inclusion mean? When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and that's why we do missions, so we can prompt Jews and Gentiles to come in to God's saving grace, and the hardness of Israel is lifted, then the climax of history at Christ's return will be a full inclusion, a fullness of Jews being saved. So it's coming. A massive turning of, of ethnic Israel to the Savior. And we'll talk more about that. God is working out his merciful plan of redemption for both Jews and Gentiles. It's beyond our understanding. We don't understand it. We can't figure out how is God doing this. But Paul will, will show us how we are to respond, as he says in verses 33 and 34 of Romans chapter 11. 
In verses 33 and 34, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Inscrutable means we, we can't get it. We can't figure it out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And the answer to that is, no, we can't exhaust, we can't understand how God works. And we haven't done anything that obligates him to save us, that obligates him to repay us, because we're only saved by grace. In fact, I love, um, what we can understand clearly is this. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You get that? You understand that? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not suffer eternal death, but have eternal life. He didn't leave the world to get what it, it deserved, judgment and wrath. And you've heard this acronym of, of grace, G-R-A-C-E, G, God's, R, riches, A, at, C, Christ, E, expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. If you really, if, if our sins were no big deal, why was the only way we could be saved by the substitutionary death of the Son of God? If you really know you deserve God's judgment, you will be grateful he saved you by grace. If you really believe you could not save yourself, you will rejoice that he saved you by his grace. If you love knowing that our everlasting God has loved you with an everlasting love that you didn't deserve, you will love the truth that the reason you are saved is that he chose you by his grace. And this wasn't a last-minute decision. God didn't say, uh, I guess I'll save him. Go ahead. Go. Just come on in. It was a decision he made in eternity past by grace in Christ. Knowing full well that you and I would continue to not deserve it. And we would continue to mess up. But his grace keeps us and sees us all the way home. His grace abounds to us. And for that, let's give thanks. Let's pray. Father, you spent your son to buy us out of sin. You sacrificed your son to redeem us from spiritual deadness and blindness and corruption. We didn't fully understand all that that meant. We don't still understand all that means. Father, as little children, we humbly receive this free gift that you've given to us in Christ. We confess that if left to ourselves, these judgments that Paul is talking about, we deserve. We deserve spiritual blindness and deafness. We deserve hardened hearts to not respond to the gospel, the good news, the great news, the beautiful news of Jesus, the Messiah. We are receiving what you purposed to do through Israel. 
And you have a great plan for them as well, Father, to redeem many more of them. But we do pray, Father, for the good news to continue to spread in our community through through us as one beggar to another, able to say, this is where I found bread, the living bread that comes down out of heaven, Christ. We thank you, Father, for the riches of his grace. He has poured out into us, rescuing us from eternal death and judgment. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for giving us Christ. Thank you for his grace. It's in his name we pray. Amen.